Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. So, i uh, got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of stuff to look at this morning, but we're going to be starting in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Uh, throughout history, some of the most uh, well-known, some of the most um, intelligent people in a certain area, some of those prominent people in certain areas, have said some really dumb things. Uh, Marshal Ferdinand uh, was a French military strategist during World War I. And he said, you know, airplanes are interesting toys, but they have no military value whatsoever. Uh, of course, now we can look back and say, well, he was wrong because planes have the greatest military value today. Uh, Kenneth Olson, he was the president and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, and he, which will later become Microsoft, but he said there is no earthly reason for an individual to have a computer in their home. How many of y'all have a computer in your home? How many of y'all have a computer in your pocket? Uh, if you've got a smartphone, you've got a computer in your pocket right now. Uh, Daryl Zanuck, he was president of 20th Century Fox in 1946, and he said the television won't be able to hold onto any market it captures after six months. People will get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Obviously, that is wrong. Uh, Decca Records, in 1962, they rejected the Beatles, signing the Beatles, and in their letter of rejection, they said, uh, we don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on the way out. Dr. Ian McDonald was a surgeon in Los Angeles in 1969, and he said, for the majority of people, the use of tobacco has beneficial effects. I'm not sure he was right about that. <laughs> uh, Western Union in 1876 wrote a memo that said, the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. King George III, uh, the King of England, wrote in his journal on July 4th, 1776, nothing of importance happened today. Of course, he would soon be wrong there. Um, now, the dumbest of all hasn't really been said but it's how we live our life today. And we live our life thinking, my choices affect no one but me. And that's just not true. Our decisions have massive impact on everyone around us. And that's what we're going to look at today. David's sin with Bathsheba, with Uriah, David's sin affected more than just him. And it affected more than just Uriah and his family. We're going to look a little deeper than that this morning. Today, we're going to look at the scars of sin. Scars are, are ugly. Scars can be painful. You know, I've got scars uh, all over my body. I scar very easily. Um, I've got, uh, you know, scars on my hands just from, you know, a paper cut will scar me some odd reason. But I've got a scar on my arm right here, a very long, jagged scar from my, my sister tried to kill me. Uh, no, this, I have a scar from where she tried to kill me here on my heart level, but it's very small. But this was where I tried to kill myself by accident. I was cutting uh, a piece of trim board with a razor knife towards myself, and 
If anyone's ever told you don't cut towards yourself, they mean it. It's a very good reason because the knife slipped and sliced my arm. And, uh, I mean, I had to call. I was, I was in the middle of nowhere. I had to call 911 and basically give them directions how to get to me. Like, you get on the road to the fork in the road, and then you take the left fork at the oak tree. And when you get the, So, I mean, I couldn't drive. I was bleeding out, but I've got a scar there. It's not, you know, not, it doesn't hurt much anymore, but it used to hurt sometimes. Especially when I got cold, it would ache. It's not very pretty. It's very, very ugly. Uh, of course, I just tell people I got attacked by a bear. Uh, and then it's a cool story, uh, but scars hurt. Scars are ugly. Uh, and today, we're going to look at how the scars of sin can affect us for years. You know, some of you here, you are dealing with the scars of sin. And today's message may open those scars back up. But here's the thing. God never opens up a scar unless He intends to heal it. Unless He intends to bring something good from it. And now, it's important never to avoid any aspect of the Word of God. Even when it's difficult, even when it hurts, we need to understand all Scripture is given for us and is profitable for us. Now, after David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, God uses Nathan to tell David that God had not yet rejected him. So real quick, back in uh, chapter 12, uh, verse number 13, the uh, Bible says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, and Nathan said to David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So David gets reassurance from Nathan that God is a forgiving God. God is a loving and a merciful God and a gracious God. And yes, David had sinned, but David had confessed his sin, he had repented of his sin, and God had forgiven him of his sin. And says, look, David, you, you messed up, you sinned, but you confessed it, you forsook it, you restored your fellowship with God, and so God is not done with you. God's not going to reject you. But before Nathan gives him that encouragement, that God forgives and God restores fellowship. He gave him a warning. Look back in verse number 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the Son. <laughs> you know, we said two weeks ago as we looked at David's sin that you can get forgiveness of sin. God wants to forgive us our sin. God is eager to forgive us our sin. If we humble ourselves and confess it and forsake it, God gives us forgiveness. But you cannot unsin. You can get forgiveness from God, but there's still consequences for what you've done wrong. Just because, just because God forgives you of your sin doesn't mean you're going to avoid the impact of that sin. Forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is complete. Forgiveness is genuine. But the consequences, the pain of your sin still remains. The next five chapters of 2 Samuel show us the effects of David's sin. It shows us the result of what David did. We're going to see how David's sin affected everyone in his family, not just him. So now turn over to chapter 13. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. 
And it came to pass after this, after David's sin with Bathsheba, after he was confronted by Nathan, after his son that he had with Bathsheba because of his sin died, after that, after this, that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he felt sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Now, you read that first verse, and uh, now again, we're in 2023. Dating your half-sister is a no-no, all right? Don't think, oh man, Bible gives me permission. No, 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 no. If you have any blood relation, stay away from that. But in this culture, a dating a half-sister, marrying a half-sister was, was, was done often. I mean, Abraham and Sarah were brother and sister. They were the half-brother and sister, but still, it was culturally acceptable. It was okay back then. Uh, it was before, you know, the, the English royals ruined the bloodline with all their inbreeding. It was all right at this time. And so Amnon, loving his half-sister... Seems kind of sweet at first, right? I mean, it says, it came to pass that Absalom, he had a fair sister, and he loved her. He loved his... But then look at verse 2. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Amnon does not love Tamar. Amnon is lusting after Tamar. She's a good girl, so he can't take advantage of her. He can't have his fun with her. He's sick about the fact that he's lusting after his half-sister, and there's really nothing he can do about it. Um, now look at verse number 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. Now, uh, of course, Jonadab here, he's a friend of Amnon, but he's also a cousin of Amnon here. And he said unto him, Why art thou being, why art thou being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick, and when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have all men from me. And they went out every man from him. So he devises, Amnon, he's, he, he's, he's lusting. Again, he, he doesn't love Tamar. He is lusting after her. And he has this friend, this cousin, that gives him a plan, devises this plan that he can have an opportunity to seduce his sister. He plays sick. David comes to see him and he goes, oh, Dad, you know, you know what would make me feel better if Tamar would come by and make me some of those hoe cakes she makes so much? Man, those would just help me out so much. And so David goes to Tamar and says, hey, man, your brother's sick and he really wants you to come cook him some food, so would you go take care of him? And Tamar's a good girl. She, she loves her brother as a brother. 
as she should. And so she obeys her dad, goes to Amnon's house, cooks him some food in front of him, and he refuses to eat. And he, he keeps playing sick and says, everybody, everybody except Tamar, get out. I'm just, I'm just so sick. Uh, and so she brings him some food. Then look at verse number 10. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes which he had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for these, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. So she brings him some food. He sends everyone out but her. And then he, he tries to seduce her. Uh, and now again, he's grabbing her and it seems harsh, but right now he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to seduce her. He doesn't want to, and again, we know he doesn't love her because if he loved her, she even says... And again, we look at it and we're like, that's weird. But she even says, if you go to dad and ask dad if you can marry me, dad will give you my hand in marriage. Which again, we're like, but you're your sister. But anyway, culture, it was okay. So she says, you know, if you go to dad, dad will let you marry me. He doesn't want to marry her. He has no intention of marrying her. So she refuses his advances and he gets very angry. Uh, then look at verse number 14. Howbeit, he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. This is vastly different language than was used when it talks about David's assault of Bathsheba. David forced Bathsheba through his position and through his power. Amnon assaults and overpowers and rapes Tamar. It's violent. It's aggressive. It's a terrible situation Tamar finds herself in. And look, while I was researching, April sent me a clip. Some, some pastor somewhere, I'm not going to name him because he's an idiot, uh, blamed Tamar for this. Says so she should have said no. She said no four times, if you read it. But even if she didn't say no... Rape, there's no excuse for rape. Anyway, I'm getting on a tangent here. I get very upset when I do read stories like this and hear people do stupid things. Anyway, so he violently rapes his half-sister. And look at verse number 15. <coughs> then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. Uh, this evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servants that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me. And bolt the door after her. Man, gone a long way from loving her to what he's doing now. He hates her. Says, Get this this woman out of here and lock the door behind her. This woman, she's his sister. He loved her, the Bible says. But now she's this woman who I'm sick of looking at. Now she is nothing 
but an object for his pleasure. Just like Bathsheba was to David. Remember when David saw Bathsheba? He said, who is this woman? Bring her to me. Same exact wording. Same exact language. Who's that woman? I want her. Get this woman out of here. Now in David's story, the author reminds her, reminds David, hey, this woman is somebody's wife. She's somebody's daughter. She's probably somebody's mother. This woman has a name. This woman has a, 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 a life outside of you. But David didn't see her that way. To him, she was just an object to satisfy his sexual desires. And now, his oldest son, the son who should be taking the throne, is treating women the exact same way. His sin has multiplied to his children. To Amnon, Tamar is not his sister. Tamar is not some woman that he knows. To him, Tamar is an object. He, he treats her like a can of Coke. Enjoys it, and then throws her away. She's nothing but garbage to him. Kind of like father, like son, right? Then look over at chapter 18, verse number 18. <clears throat> and she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for which she such robes. <clears throat> uh, where the king's daughter that were virgins apparelled, then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garments of diverse colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. So there's, this, there's these special robes that the virgin daughters of the king would wear, and now, not because of anything she's done, this is none of her fault, but her life's ruined. She is ashamed. She rips up those garments, signifying her purity. She puts ashes on her head uh, because of her mourning. She goes on crying. Verse 20, And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard all these things, he was very wroth. So Tamar is devastated. And it's, it's very easy to understand why. Her brother violently rapes her, throws her out of his house. She is ruined. Her brother tells her, well, you know, you don't want to cause trouble for Amnon. Don't say anything. Look, that's the worst advice in the world. If any one of you, man, woman, child, whatever, is assaulted by someone, I don't care who it is, don't keep quiet. Shout it from the rooftops. Get the, get the help that you need. But David hears about it, and the Bible says David is very wroth. The word wroth there in the Hebrew means exceedingly angry. It talks about how, it really uses the same connotation about how God feels towards sin. David is furious. And you know what he does about it? Nothing. Not a thing. He doesn't reach out to Tamar. He doesn't confront Amnon. Now look, we don't know why. Maybe he feels so much guilt over what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah that he thinks, I'm not in a moral position to do that. Uh, maybe he's just too distracted with running the kingdom. Maybe he's just a bad dad. I'm going to tell you, in this instance, he's a bad dad. 
He's he hears about his his daughter being, and I don't care who it's by. He does nothing. I can't imagine that. I mean, how many of you fathers, if you heard something about this about your daughter, would just sit back and go, "Oh man, I'm so mad about that." Oh well, not me. People better find whoever hurt my daughter before I do, because then I'm going to prison for life. Because I'm gonna I'm gonna skin him alive. So. I'm going to make sure of it. And I know most of y'all dads are the same way. You hurt my kids, you better run. But David's like, oh man, that's, I'm so angry. Oh well. Doesn't do anything. And that doesn't help anyone. Now, Tamar, of course, she has a brother, Absalom. And he decides to do something because David won't. Look again at verse number 20. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Have Amnon thy brother been with thee, but now, but hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Again, incredibly bad advice. Hold thy peace literally means forget about it. How can she forget about something? She shouldn't have been quiet about it. Absalom should be speaking about it, uh, speaking up for her. But like too many victims, she does what she's told and she doesn't talk about it. She lived the rest of her life, the Bible says, desolate in Absalom's house. Desolate means devastated and deserted. She's broken and alone. Everyone who should be fighting for her is doing nothing. Imagine how she feels. Now Absalom, he starts to plot his revenge, but... You'll see, it's, it's not really about trying to seek vengeance for Tamar. It's really his own pride, his own arrogance that he's trying to seek revenge. And it takes two years, but he finally puts his plan into motion. He invites Amnon to his house for dinner, gets Amnon drunk, and then has him, and then murders him. Kind of sounds like what David did to Uriah. David's sins are being multiplied to his children. David is reaping what he sowed. Now again, Absalom, it's not about Tamar, it's not about healing or restoration. Absalom kills Amnon because Absalom wants the throne. Because Absalom wants to defend his honor. He murders his brother, he flees the country, and for three years he's on the run. And it's a huge national scandal. Everyone knows what happened. Then skip over to chapter 14. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. And Joab sent Tikona and fetched thence a wise woman and said unto her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint thyself uh, and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that hath a long time mourned for the dead. And come to the king and speak on this matter, this manner unto him. <clears throat> so Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tikanah spake to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obstinence and said, Help, O king. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and mine husband is dead. And thy handmaid had two sons. And they strove together in a field, and there was none to part them. But the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family is risen against thy handmaid. 
And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of his brother whom he slew, and we will destroy the heir also, so that they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave my husband neither name, neither reminder, uh, remainder upon the earth. And the king said unto the woman, Go to thine house, and I will charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekanah said unto the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity be on me, and on thy, my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So Joab, he knows David's really upset about uh, what's going on in his family. He, he's upset about Absalom and what he's done and that he's not there anymore. So he puts this plan in motion. He has this woman come to David and tell a story. Say, hey, tell, tell David you got two sons. One son killed the other one and then had to flee. And he wants to come back. He's, he's repent- he wants to come home, but he can't. Because you know he, he's worried about what people are going to do to him if he gets there, uh, if he comes back home, and so and, and you know if, if he can't come home, then no one's going to watch over me. If he does come home, they're going to kill him, and my husband's name's going to be removed from the earth, and I have no one to watch over me in my old age. Have no heir for uh, my husband's work, and so David, uh, again, this is very similar to what happened with Bathsheba, where Nathan comes and tells him a story. David's not very smart in recognizing when people are talking about him. Uh, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer when it comes to things like this. And so he, he hears a story, and again, he's heartbroken. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fix this for you. I'm going to make sure that your son comes home, and he's safe, and you can have a relationship with him. And the woman again goes, oh, oh by the way, this is about you. And so David understands what is happening to him. So he allows Absalom to come home, but he refuses to see him. He refuses to talk to him because he's still angry. So Absalom, after he comes home, he doesn't see David for two years. Which means for five years, Absalom hasn't talked to his dad. Hasn't spoken to his dad because of what has happened in his family. Then look over at verse number uh, 30 in chapter 14. Sorry, verse 20. Uh, no, 30. I, I'm, I was in a hurry this week and I messed up things. Verse 30, sorry. Uh, uh, Therefore he said unto a servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath bar- barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the, set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore hast thy servant set my field on fire. So to get to get David's attention, to get the attention of his dad, he burns Joab's field. Now this is just, you know, this is kind of a situation where any attention is good attention. His dad's ignored him for the last five years, and so he burns down Joab's field to get it on fire. And David, it works. David agrees to see him. Verse number thirty-three. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed. Absalom. So David agrees to see Absalom, and he comes in. And again, we're looking at it it's like, oh, he kissed Absalom. They're, they're, they're restored their relationship. They're back together. But again, when you look at the language, it is a ceremonial kiss. It's the type of kiss David would give to anybody who's coming to the king's presence. He is going through the motions with Absalom. But he's not really restoring the relationship. Absalom spends the next four years trying to overthrow David as king. Absalom's tall. He's good-looking. 
The Bible tells us he had really long, luxurious hair that weighed five pounds. I can't imagine carrying around five pounds on your head. But he had this beautiful head of hair. He was politically savvy. He would sit outside the palace and when people would come to see David about issues, if David didn't see them because he was too busy and they come out, they're upset at the king because the king didn't see them because he's too busy and Absalom was okay. man, if I were in charge, I'd, I'd have taken time to see you. This is an important issue. I'd have taken time to, to see what the problem is. If people would get before the king, but David ruled against them, again, they'd come out upset and Absalom would hear their story and go, man, if I were king, I would have ruled in your favor you're, you know, that's, that's not justice. You were mistreated in that. He, the Bible says he turned the heart of the people against David and to him. People recognized him as David's son, as the, the rightful heir to the king, because now he's the oldest. And they would bow down to him, but Absalom would pull him up and say, hey, don't bow to me. Me, me and you, we're, we're exactly the same. You know, it's like these, these you know, trust fund politicians who try to relate to the common man. Like, I know exactly how, how your life is. No, you don't, Absalom. You have no idea what I'm going through. But he, he, the people related to him, and they thought, man, this guy, he, he, he'd, be a better, he'd be a better king than David would. Because he understands what we're going through. Look at verse number, chapter 15. Look at verse number 6. <clears throat> and on this matter, manner, that Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The people of Israel, they, they fall in love with him. And so when he stages a coup against David, when he mounts this rebellion against the king, he's got the support of the people. So David has to flee the palace. The Bible says he's running from the palace barefoot with his head covered. Uh, and to so, you know, he's running for his life. And to show his power... Absalom sets up a tent on the roof of the palace and sleeps with David's wives, just like Nathan said would happen. He does it to humiliate his father, let everyone know that he stole the throne. That's how chapter 15 ends. Absalom steals the throne of David. He steals David's wives. And, you know, the irony is Absalom is doing all this on the roof of the palace where David's sin started because he was on the roof of the palace where he shouldn't be doing what he shouldn't be doing and allowed lust to take over. The sins of the father have been multiplied to the sons. Look at chapter 30. <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse number 30. <clears throat> And David went up into the ascent of the Mount of Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people that was with him covered every man his head and they went up weeping as they went up. David is a failure in every aspect right now. He's been dethroned. His family's been destroyed. His wives have been stolen. He's running barefoot up the Mount of Olives, weeping and humiliating. Now let's flip over to chapter 18. David, he has this plan to take the throne back, starting in verse number 1. And David numbered the people that were with him, 
and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abashai and the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Atai the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth. For if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, now it is better that thou secure us out of the city. And David said unto them, What seem, what seemeth you best I will do? And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ithai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the, the captain's charge concerning Absalom. So David, he, he plans to take back the throne. The people come back to his side. And so he attacks Jerusalem to drive Absalom out of the city. But he tells the army, don't kill my son. Don't kill Absalom. Despite everything that he has done, David still wants to be merciful. Look at verse number 9. <clears throat> And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between heaven and earth, and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it, uh, and told Joab, and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, yet I would not put forth mine hand against the king's sons. For in I hearing, the king charged thee, and Abishai and Ithai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no manner, uh, matter hid from the king, that thy, uh, and thou thyself wouldst have set thyself against me. And then Joab said, I might not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand, and thrust him through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. So Absalom flees the city, and he gets his beautiful locks caught up in a tree, and he's hung on a tree. And so the Bible is teaching us, don't have long hair. No, it's not what it's telling us. Uh, but he gets his hair caught up in a tree, and you know Joab finds out about it because a man comes, hey, I found Joab, he's hanging in a tree. And Joab's like, why didn't you kill him? And the guy says, well, because David told us not to. And Joab, remember, Joab's the one that covered for David with Uriah. Joab's the one that brought Absalom back from exile. I think Joab's a little guilty here. And he's a little upset about what's happened because of his meddling. So Joab says, well, I'll take care of it puts three darts in his heart, and then the rest of the men that are with him cut Absalom down, and they beat him, and they kill him, and he destroys Absalom. And then he blows the trumpet, and everybody starts coming back. And David starts asking, hey, what happened? Anybody know what happened to Absalom? Anybody know what happened to Absalom? And not everybody knows, but then one soldier knows what happened. So look at verse 32. <clears throat> and the king said to Cushi, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushi answered, the enemies of my lord, the king... And all that rise against thee uh, to do thee hurt be as the, that young man is. And so he knows what happened, but he doesn't want to tell David. Uh, but David finds out that his son is dead. And look at verse number 33. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. 
And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. These are some of the the most heart-wrenching words in this story. The phrase, much moved, literally talks about the crushing realization that David is dealing with because he understands everything that has happened. His daughter's rape. His oldest son's murder. This rebellion by Absalom. Absalom's ultimate death. All of this is because of him. He knows this is my fault. I did this. My sin caused this to happen in my family. And of course, uh, this is the first time that since it's all started that David has used Absalom's name. Before, when, when, Aunt, when uh, Job, Joab wants Absalom to come back and David's talking about Absalom, he never uses his name. This is the first time he utters his son's name and it's after his son's death. And remember last week when we looked at Psalm 51, we talked about when Hebrew writing, when something's repeated, it, it signifies the intense emotions. David says, my son, six times. That's how tragic the story of David and Absalom ends. That David is broken over what his sin has done to his family. Now all that for three quick points that I want to get to to show us a few things. The first thing I want to look at is the sins of the father are passed on to the children. Parents. I said father, but I mean everybody. What you struggle with, what you allow because you don't think it's a big deal, your kids are going to indulge in. That's, that's how it is. What you allow in your life, what sin you allow in your life is going to be passed on to your children. And what you think is okay and you kind of dabble in, they're going to take extraordinary pleasure in doing. The Bible has a principle called the law of the harvest. What you sow multiplies. If you plant one kernel of corn, you're going to get ears of corn, a stalk with four or five ears of corn, and each ear of corn has you know, a couple hundred kernels of corn on it. You don't sow one thing and get one thing. What you sow multiplies. When you plant something, it comes back greater than what you had planted. That applies to a lot of areas in your life, but especially when it comes to sin. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that we reap what we sow. So when we sow sinful habits, it grows. It overtakes our life. It will choke out any spiritual life that we have. We see this principle in these, in these chapters. David sows sin and he reaps it in his family. He sows lust and betrayal and murder and it's multiplied in his children. In Exodus 34, God warns Israel that he will visit the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. Now, here's, that does not mean that the children will be punished for their parents' sins. But it does mean that they're going to suffer because of their sins. That the sin that the fathers allow will be multiplied to their children. Just look at Joseph. You know, Joseph is sold into slavery because his brothers are jealous because Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. 
But Jacob loved Joseph more than the rest of his children because Joseph was the son of Jacob and Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Caused a lot of jealousy between Leah and the other handmaids, and it was obvious. And that jealousy that Leah had because of Jacob's love for Rachel was passed on to her children who hated Joseph because of their father's love for him. But where did Jacob get it? Well, Jacob had a father named Isaac who had another son called Esau, and Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. So Jacob was jealous of Isaac's favoritism to Esau, so he shows favoritism to Rachel and to Joseph, and Joseph is sold into slavery all because generations before, Isaac allowed sin to affect his family. Our sin, it affects and it shapes our children. Our sins, they, they learn and they repeat our mistakes. Studies, not just scripture, but scientific and psychological studies have shown if you neglect your children, there's a very good chance they're going to neglect theirs. Abused children very often grow up to be abusers. Hurt people hurt people. If you have an affair and cheat on your spouse, your kids have a very good possibility of growing up with commitment issues because they learn from you. They multiply what you do in your life. Every sin, now look, every sin you see in your kid's life isn't your fault. So don't, you know, when your kids sin, don't, don't, don't be going to, you know, uh, let's be honest, wives don't go to your husband and say, that's your fault. You a liar and that's why they're in jail right now. No, your kids make their own decisions. They have a free will. They're, they're going to sin their own ways. But what you sow will be reaped in greater degrees in the lives of your children. Sin is deadly serious for everyone around you. Now look, that's bad news. But here's some good news. Number two, you can break the cycle of sin. You can break the cycle of sin. David didn't commit one sin and everything fell apart. There were multiple failures in his life and in this story. And that's good news because that means there were multiple chances for David, for Amnon, for Absalom to break the cycle of sin. That means there are multiple opportunities for you to break the cycle of sin too. Look, Amnon, he failed by objectifying his sister. Absalom failed by murdering his brother. But there's one failure that's the cause of all of it. David's silence in important moments. He was silent when his daughter was raped. Even though Deuteronomy 22 commands him, not just as a father, but as the king of Israel commands him to give justice to the rape victim. But he ignored it. He was silent about it. Tamar was invisible. She was ignored because David didn't speak up when he should have. What might have happened if David 
would have sought justice for Tamar? What would have happened if David, instead of hearing about Tamar hiding away in her brother's house in shame, would have maybe gone to see her? Say, baby, I'm so sorry this happened. I'll take care of you. Know, this, I'm, is, I'm so ta- this is terrible, but I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. Yeah, I know Amnon's your brother, and I know Amnon's my son. I know Amnon's the heir, but I don't care. I'm going to seek justice. But he, he didn't. He didn't deal with Tamar. He didn't deal with Amnon. What if he taught Absalom what godly justice and mercy looked like? You know, in, the, in Genesis 3, after the fall, God comes to the garden and he asks, Adam, where are you? He didn't ask that because he didn't know where he was. He knew exactly where Adam was. <clears throat> he asked that because Adam had failed at his job. You know, a lot of people put the blame for the mess we're in on Eve. And look, I agree, Eve's got some issues there. She's got a little bit of blame there because she took the fruit. Read the story, the Bible says Adam was with her. Adam was the... See, Eve didn't hear from God, don't, don't eat that fruit. Adam heard from God. And Adam told Eve. And Adam knew what was going on was wicked. And I've heard people say, well, you know, the Bible says he was with her, but he wasn't. No, when you look at the, the, the Hebrew word with, he was right beside her. Listening to the servant serpent speak. Listening to Eve and what she was doing. And he was there when she reached out and took that fruit. He was there when she took the first bite and he did nothing to stop her. He was to blame. So when God comes and says, Adam, where are you? What he's asking is, Adam, why didn't you do your job? Why didn't you stand up and do what was right? Because of Adam, we're in the mess we're in. Because of Adam's sin, we all have to suffer. He was supposed to keep the serpent out. He was supposed to keep Eve from taking the fruit. So the original sin wasn't Eve's. It was Adam's failure to do his job. And all the sin that happened in these chapters happened because David didn't do his job as a leader of the family. David didn't do what he was supposed to do. You know, we have a world full of a generation of men who are not growing up to be spiritual leaders. We have men who are growing up to do whatever they want to do and they don't care about what happens to the rest of the world. Men who sit back and give the wives control of the family. The wives control... And look, again, I'm not... Y'all know me. I'm not sitting up here trying to say, women, be silent in the church and get in your place and you be subject to... I'm not saying that. Y'all know me. But the Bible does say the man's the head of the house. Again, not a dictator but a leader. And leaders have good partners to help lead them. But men who, who let the wives take control of how we're going to raise the children, how we're going to teach them about God, if we're going to go to church at all. You know, sadly, a lot of churches don't have a lot of men in them, and they'd have even less if the wives let them stay at home, but the wife wakes up and nags them on Sunday morning to get to church. And so they come to church because men aren't doing the job they're supposed to do. They're not taking the role in their marriage David should have acted. He should have used his power to heal and protect Tamar. We can break the cycle of sin in our families, in our lives, but we have to act. Why didn't David act? Why didn't his sons act? Because they were stuck in a cycle of sin and violence. We see in these three chapters, we see three men who are acting like kings 
but they're the wrong kind of kings. David is a passive king. He's silent when he should be speaking up. Amnon is an abusive king, using power for his own pleasure instead of serving others. And Absalom is the selfish king who does everything for himself. They did not break the cycle. And here's the reason why. Because we can break the cycle, but number three, Jesus will break the cycle of sin for us. You cannot break the cycle of sin in your life or in your family's life without His help. You cannot do it alone. As David flees Jerusalem barefoot, his head covered, he's a failure. But there's a detail tucked in there that we often miss that I want to look at. So back in chapter 15, verse number 30. The Bible says, And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and wept as he went up, and his head was covered, and he went barefoot, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and went up weeping as they went, as they went up. The ascent to the Mount of Olivet is renamed later to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus wept and shed sweat great drops of blood on the night of his crucifixion. In the New Testament, the son of David takes the same path, weeping and sweating blood. This future son of David would be rejected of, as king just like David was. But he, didn't, he wasn't driven there because of his own sin. It was our sin that led him there. He walked the same path of shame as David to redeem David, to put David's kingdom back together. Now David says, and at the end of chapter thirteen or 15, uh, sorry, chapter eighteen, David says he would have died to save Absalom, but he couldn't. Jesus did die for us, and he rose again to restore us to God the Father. That's how we break the cycle of sin in our lives. Jesus has broken the curse of sin and He's given us His grace. On the cross, He died to pay our sin debt, but He broke the power of sin through His resurrection. His death broke the curse of sin. His resurrection breaks the power of sin on our lives. We no longer are subject to sin. We no longer are slaves to sin. If we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, we have the power inside of us to say, no, I'm not going to do that even though I've done it my whole life, or even though my parents taught me how to do it. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to seek my own pleasure. I'm going to live for God. But you will not do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. You know, that's, that's great news for everyone in this story. Jesus died to break the chain of sin for David, for Amnon, for Absalom. He even walked up that same path at David, weeping and sweating blood for Tamar. She's forgotten by everyone in this story. Even David. Even her own father. But she's not forgotten about by Jesus. Jesus walks David's path of shame to bring healing to her. 
When Jesus wept in the garden, he was weeping for Tamar. See, that's good news because you may be here and you're like Tamar. You are hurt by someone else's sins. The Bible says God took our griefs. He took our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. His punishment gives us peace. So that means I can plead the blood of Jesus against, in, against the sin in my life, and I can plead the blood of Jesus from any curse of sin that it causes on others. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He died to pay the penalty, and He rose to release us from the power of it. Because of Him, I am no longer a slave to sin, and neither are you. Whether it's my sin or someone else's, who hurt me. So whether you're trying to break the cycle of your sin, or like Tamar, you've been hurt by someone else's sin, Jesus says, I'm here to heal you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to forgive you and restore you to fellowship. He walked up that hill for you. He died on the cross for you. And He rose from the grave to free you from sin. This is a terrible story. It's full of pain and violence and brokenness. And here's the thing. The world hasn't changed since then. We still have pain and hurt and brokenness and violence. We all are David and Amnon and Absalom and Tamar. But there's hope. Jesus gives us the power to break the cycle of sin. He offers forgiveness and freedom and healing. But here's the thing. We have to come to Him. You have to open yourself up to Him. The Bible says that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. We've got to answer the door. We have to accept, first of all, we've got to accept His death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. So we can have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We can have our sin debt paid. And we can be redeemed to God the Father. And we can be saved. But if you're here and you're saved, I guarantee you, you still struggle with sin. He gives us freedom to, remove, to take away the power of sin. But we have to be willing to come to Him and say, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to break the cycle. I want to break the cycle of sin in my life. I want to break the cycle of sin in my family's life. I want to stop the curse of sin that people are dealing with. God's knocking, saying, hey, I'm here to help. Are we going to answer to Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.